This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Kurt Sova grew up rough and tough alongside his three older brothers in the Cleveland area in the 1970s and 80s. The four of us were, like we always said, we were half a football team or half a baseball team. We were always together. My, my dad was in the Marines, so we grew up kind of strict. Uh, the end of each school year, we'd, uh, we'd end each day coming home the last day of school, <laughs> getting our military buzz cuts. There was, there was a five-year difference with Kurt, so I, I was more responsible for him than, than anything, I guess you could say, back, back in the day. Um, we, we grew up kind of fast. We grew up tough. Mom and Dad both worked. We, we grew up in a neighborhood that kind of changed overnight. When we grew up, when, when we were born there, we bought the home. It was in a tighter ethnic neighborhood. The inner city at that time in Cleveland, like most cities, began to change and most of the people started moving out we uh wound up being one of the last families in the neighborhood before 1970 about 1974 that's kevin the oldest sova brother and he and the others protected the baby of the family kurt he was sheltered from some of the stuff that his older brothers were getting into i guess he realized in an early age that he could get away get away with things being the baby. Kevin, who's now 60, takes us back to the 80s growing up with his three brothers. Kurt was the life of the party no matter where they went together. He, he just was funny. He would, his, his nickname was Mousy. They used to call him Mousy because he would walk around, when he was a kid, he would walk around, eek, 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 squeaking all the time. And, and he just learned early on at all the family functions that his sense of humor was a, was a good way for his, him to communicate. And, and he took full advantage of it. He was, I don't know about the class clown, but he, he just liked being funny. The jokester of the family also liked fishing and sports. Kurt loved football, loved baseball. Um, he played in and played a little league, little league baseball. I, I guess his probably his, his biggest sport would have been football. He loved playing football with all his friends. But that little, the little sticker was fast. He was the fastest of the four of us. The kid could fly. <laughs> I mean, he could just flat out fly. I mean, God gifted him with a set of feet. Maybe because he he got used to running from his brothers all the time. I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, we, we, we beat up on each other. And, and you know, we, we roughhoused all the time. They grew up in a modest but happy home. It was back in a time when we, we just all stuck together. Um, all the family, we, we had no money. We grew up relatively poor um maybe poor is the wrong word we weren't medium income we weren't poor but we we had everything we wanted and the sova brothers looked out for each other mom and dad are working and and we're growing up in a rough and tough neighborhood you learn to stick together early on you learn to run or you learn to fight well the four boys finally learned how to stick up for each other. It, it, it just weighed heavily on us. I think it just forced us all to grow up way quicker. But I know one thing, you know, nobody nobody could touch Kurt or touch Kenny or touch Keith or touch Kevin. We could beat the hell out of each other, but nobody else could. That's just how it was. But on a crisp fall weekend, 
just before Halloween, the Sova brothers wouldn't be able to save their little brother from what was about to happen. It's Friday night, October 23rd, 1981. After skipping school that day, 17-year-old Kurt Sova meets up with his friend and goes to a party that night in Newburgh Heights, a Cleveland suburb. Newburgh Heights Police Chief John Majoy has only been with the department a few years, but has decided to take another look at Kurt, his case, and his life back in 1981. By all accounts, he got fairly decent grades. It appears as though there was enemies lining up for this guy. He was a typical 17-year-old. He drank some alcohol, he smoked some marijuana, he hung out with his friends, he skipped school. There was a party, and at some point during the night had become intoxicated and was going to leave and was standing outside uh, with a friend of his, and the friend, uh, it was late October, the friend says, I'm going to go inside and get our coats goes inside, he's gone just a couple quick minutes, Kurt's standing outside waiting for him, again he's intoxicated, comes back out, Kurt's gone, looks around, doesn't appear as though he did much of a search for him, just kind of figured he went whatever. And just like that, a little brother is gone. Kurt's three brothers, parents, and friends search every square inch of the area where he was last seen at that party. On Sunday, his family files a missing persons report. His father, Kenneth Sova, knows something isn't right. He talks to WKYC in Cleveland in the days that followed. I knew something was wrong with him because it wasn't not like him to be away from that, the house that long without calling or without getting in touch with somebody. Kevin says he and his brothers didn't make a habit of staying out all night without letting someone know their plans. We all came home every night. We didn't just disappear. And if we did, our parents knew what was going on. Um, we were probably, we had more freedoms than I would imagine most, most kids growing up. We started to look for Kurt probably Saturday. We, we, we started trying to figure out what was going on. It became a little, a little scary Saturday because we couldn't locate him. Usually... When neither one of us were right, you could find somebody we could locate each other real fast. Sunday, we started panicking because nobody could find Kurt. And then there were stories. We, we finally heard about this party, which none of us knew anything about. We didn't know any of the people there. Five days later, on a Wednesday evening, a few neighborhood youngsters cutting through the industrial area stumble upon something in a ravine. It's Kurt Sova. About 5.30 yesterday afternoon, some kids were cutting through this dump behind Republic Steel. When they got to this pond, they saw the body of 17-year-old Kurt Sova lying face up, half submerged in the water. Lying in a small pond, Kurt is right where his family and friends had searched just days earlier and only about 500 feet from where the party was Friday night. His body was dumped there. He didn't, the body was missing a shoe. And, you know, where's another shoe? How did he get there? And, you know, the bottom of his foot was clean. So if he'd have been walking through there, you know, with one shoe on and just socks, you know, there would have been a lot more dirt, you know, on his feet. And so, you know, they're just, and, and this isn't rocket science policing. This is just 
you know, the, the armchair detective could figure this out. This ravine is, is about a thousand feet from where I'm sitting at my desk. Uh, the area, while it, you know, using the word ravine, um, is not some desolate area. It's, you know, kids would go back there and ride bikes. It was kind of like a cut through, but it was an, also an entrance to a trucking business. It's uh, somewhat frequent traveled by these truck drivers. And so when we talked to some of the people, it's like, you know, if, if you're driving a truck in here, would you see the body? And I'm like, absolutely. Chief Majoy believes someone knows how Kurt ended up there. And Kurt still has alcohol in his system. The, the coroner's report says that Kurt had been dead for 24 to 36 hours. Um, his blood alcohol concentration was a 0.11. Uh, certainly not enough to kill him. But other than that, nothing. He has no signs of blunt force trauma to his body, no real apparent cause of death. You know, bumps and bruises and no different than, than what any other kid, you know, who's 17, you know, goes out and plays football or does whatever. Um, you know, there, there's not, no smoking gun there. And so the, the coroner's report just basically said instantaneous physiological death and accidental. And, and that was pretty much it. And so there was no, uh, basically, it was told to the police department there's no crime. And so they, the police department just didn't really do much of an investigation at all. And they did a little bit, but uh, not anywhere near what they should have done on it. The coroner is unable to determine a cause of death, only that he was deceased for a day or so, not the entire five days he was missing. So what happened? There's no evidence of assault, and police aren't sure if they have a murder or an accident. We're cataloging at it as a suspicious death. And so in, in death investigations, you know, the, the easiest way to describe it is all deaths are suspicious deaths until proven otherwise. And that's kind of like a good role to go by. And I don't care if you've got a 90-year-old person who passes away that seems like natural causes, you know, but maybe the grandkids got tired of waiting for the inheritance, you know, and sped up the process. And so the point being is that this death was suspicious from the get-go, and it wasn't given that due diligence. And so that's how we're treating it as a suspicious death. Do we think somebody killed him? It's possible, but... Is it more plausible that he died and his body was later dropped there? Yeah, because that area was searched. And so somehow or another, that body got there. And, you know, being that the body had, you know, being that he had been dead for 24 to 36 hours, you know, it just adds another twist to it. And so, you know, we, but we don't have that smoking gun. Like, here's a gunshot wound, here's a stabbing, you know, here's a you know, a point four toxicology or something like that, that he was overdosed on alcohol. We don't have any of that. And so um, you know, basically all we have is what the, the ME ruled at the time, which is fine, but, you know, we're, we're not questioning that, but we're just taking a second look at it and saying, okay, you know, what technologies are available today that weren't available in 1981, you know, as far as helping us determine cause of death, uh, time of death, you know, toxicology, you know, is there... You know, could that, is that an accurate number? We don't know. And so these are some of the things that we're looking at, at least on the science end of it. You know, but on the other end of it, we're looking at, you know, who, who was there. But his brother Kevin isn't buying some of the stories from those who were at the party with Kurt that night. There's so many different stories pertaining to this case. 
that you almost got to the point you didn't know what to believe anymore. All, I, all we knew was our youngest brother was dead, and we didn't know why. And what happened in the five days that Kurt was missing after the party is a mystery. Now, did he die at his, at his own hands? That's, that's always been a possibility. Maybe he did overindulge, which was the beginning of the end for him. But the fact is, in them three days that he supposedly was still alive, according to the coroners, why didn't anybody try to get him help? Why didn't anybody call us? Why didn't anybody take him to the hospital and just drop him off at the hospital? So was it a case of that they were trying to let him recover and they kept checking on him and then at one point they found him dead in panic? Is that indeed what happened? That's a possibility. But then how do you dump a body? How do you just take supposedly your friend or maybe the people in the party just panicked and didn't want to be implicated in it and put him where they found him? The worst part of this whole thing is not knowing what happened from the time he left, disappeared from this party and the time that they found him dead. If Kurt was drinking high-grain alcohol, very high alcohol, and somehow he went into a, an alcohol-induced coma or something, and, and he died because of his own decision. That's something the family could live with. But why, why is it we can't be told that? You should never, when a family member dies or a loved one dies or a friend dies, we should know why, even if it's not something we want to hear. My dad died, he died of cancer. Keith died of cancer. Kenny died of a drug overdose. My mom died of a heart attack, hit the floor and never came back. When somebody dies, we, we should know why and be able to put it to rest. And having to, to be left with the demons in your brain, whatever you conjure up sometimes. Was he murdered and somebody's hiding it? Did he make a fatal mistake and it cost him his life? Now, Kevin is the last surviving member of his family, fighting for justice and for answers. To this day, 40, well, 39 years, almost 39 years later, I would have rather known back then and be able to put my hand about around a young kid that maybe panicked and made the wrong decision and go, it's not your fault. Maybe somebody didn't have to live with all of this all these years. His mother, Dorothy Sova, never gave up. In fact, her investigation into her son's case may help solve it once and for all, even after her own passing in 2014. And it got to a point where it drove my poor mom to the point that it physically started to affect her. I used to tell my mom, just let, please let it press and try to go on with your life. Well, now I'm a parent. Back then I was a brother. Now being a parent, I can understand how it ate my mom and dad alive. If I could trade places and Kurt, have Kurt here today, I'd be gone. I'd be gone yesterday and let him, let him be here. After his mom died, Kevin was cleaning out her house and found boxes of files and handwritten notes spanning over decades. Chief Majoy now has that box. She kept very detailed notes. I mean, she was a hell of an investigator and talked to this person and, you know, date and time and, you know, and all this information and she was passing that on to the police department, but they just never really ran with much. And, you know, it, it's hard to say now, almost 40 years later, if, if that was, would have been helpful to have or not. That box, the new police chief, a Tiffin University professor and 10 of his criminology students are taking a closer look with fresh eyes. And in February, hundreds of citizen detectives will take a crack at the cold case and maybe finally solve Kurt's case. It will mean that every, everything my mom took to her grave 
was worth it. Because when I finally do meet back up with her, I can tell her. I'm sure they already have the answers. If indeed what happens to us and the fate that we have on this earth happens to us when we leave here, some days I question that. I, str I struggle with my fate. I have, I have a strong fate, but I struggle with it. Because I see so many things go on and I look and I go, God, how can you let this happen? How could you let Kurt go to a party and never come home? Kevin talks to his mom, graveside. I'll spend some time at the cemetery talking to my mom and dad and my brothers and going, I've been out there already and go, I wish you guys were here right now. I was out there the other day and standing there crying going, you can't believe what's happening here. There's people that care, mom. And I fought with you all these years telling you to give up because nobody cares and you were the one right and I was wrong. There's people that I don't even know that care about your son. More on those people and how they're trying to solve Kurt's case on next week's True Crime Chronicles as we dig deeper into the 40-year-old cold case. If you have any information, call Cuyahoga County Crime Stoppers or the Newburgh Heights Police Department tip line at 216-386-0024. Hi, listeners. Uh, this is Spencer Brudig. I'm here with Jessica Knoll and Will Johnson. So there's very clearly a story here, and it's a tragic one. But my biggest question is, we really don't even know if this guy was murdered, right? I mean, he was found 500 feet from the place that he was last seen. You know, in this field, he, he was in water. Could he have just stumbled his way over there, fallen in, cracked his head, and, uh, you know, remained alive for a couple of days and then died in that water. Yeah, I mean, and not to be callous, but he wouldn't be the first person to be drinking, uh, consuming a lot of alcohol and then have an accident that leads to deadly consequences. Well, that's one of the mysteries kind of surrounding all this is what happened in those days after he went missing and before he was found. Because if you remember in this episode, um, his body was found five days later. But it was found in a location that his family and friends had searched thoroughly that weekend. So his body wasn't there when they were searching. And then some kids found his body five days later that Wednesday. And according to the police chief, you know, they don't know if they're investigating a crime. They don't know necessarily if they're investigating a homicide. It could very well have been an accidental death. However, the chief is pretty adamant that he did not get to this spot on his own. And the reason for that is he was missing a shoe when he was found, and his sock was relatively clean. And the chief believes if, if in fact— he did stumble out there after, you know, days of binging or drinking. His sock would be dirty, and it wasn't. So it's his theory that someone placed him in that spot. Now, whether or not he was he was killed and put in that spot or he accidentally died and was put in that spot. Now, also remember, there was no blunt force trauma. There was no evidence of any sort of... Um, physical injury to him. So he didn't fall and hit his head. I mean, there was nothing like that. So what the coroner basically came to was there was no cause. They didn't have an, it was an unknown cause of death, basically. And um, the only thing that they had at that time was that he still had alcohol in his system, uh, 0.11. 
um, which would not have killed him, but that tells you that there was alcohol in his system from that Friday night all the way through Wednesday. So it's, it's that that whole that time frame of when he went missing to when he was found is the mystery that they're trying to figure out at this point. Right. I mean, so, yeah, you review all the reasons why this isn't just an accident or may not be an accident or doesn't seem like just an accident. It is it is kind of mysterious. You've talked to the brother in this episode, the police chief. What are those conversations like? I mean, do you get a real sense that they're pretty confident that somebody is responsible for this and that person is potentially still out there? I get a real sense that they believe that People know what happened. Um, as far as responsibility, I'm not sure what where that lies at this point. But they are re, the chief is re-interviewing uh, people who were at the party or that were friends of his, and the brother doesn't really believe a lot of what was told to police back in 1981. And next week, we will be back with more on this case, the case of Kurt Sova. Uh, in fact, we are going to be telling you about a large group of people who are gathering uh, very soon in Chicago to talk about this case, to discuss the case, to look for possible new leads. And we're taking the opportunity on True Crime Chronicles to cover this case over two episodes so that we can bring you more about what's happening there. Join us next week right here on True Crime Chronicles. <laughs>